Leviticus chapter 11 this evening as we begin there. Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And we find ourselves in Leviticus chapter 11. The theme of the book of Leviticus again is holiness. And holiness means to be separated. It means to be separated uh, from the world, separated unto God's uh, use. Chapters 1 through 7, the Lord is detailed in the book of Leviticus. He has established now and initiated and, and kind of got it going now, the whole uh, sacrificial system and the five main sacrifices of of uh, the Jewish worship of the Lord. And then in chapters 8 through 10, the launching and, and initiation, public kind of uh, initiation of the Aaronic priesthood. And now beginning in chapter 11, he's going to start to address a variety of issues through uh, the rest of, of the book. And so uh, the Lord's going to instruct the children of Israel about how to handle very, very specific areas of their life and specifically to instruct the priests for how to handle this as these uh, problems and situations would arise among uh, God's people. They are a pilgrim people. They need this instruction. And so he gives it to them uh, supremely for the purpose of uh, teaching them how to be a holy people in an unholy world. He wanted them to be different from the world. He wanted them to be, uh, for their lives to be distinguished in the eyes of everyone from the rest of the world. But he wanted that to be his way. Sometimes if we begin to feel that uh, we've got to take the burden of uh, uh, establishing our own ideas of holiness so that our neighbors will know that we're holy or our schoolmates will know that we're holy or our peers will know that we're holy, we'll come up with all kinds of of goofy ideas about that and uh, almost none of them will look like Christ who again is the standard for holiness and uh, so God gives them very specific instructions concerning their diet the handling of infectious diseases handling of dead bodies uh, avoiding idolatry sexual purity personal hygiene and and many many other things as well there as we go through uh, this section of the book of Leviticus and God's law related to this there are very very obvious uh, health benefits to what the uh, Lord commands the children of Israel to do behind all of these these commandments and uh, many of them are just uh, become obvious to us with our kind of technology and, and medical uh, uh, you know kind of expertise that we have uh, just in the last 50 years sometimes just in the last 20 years we see have learned uh, scientifically the wisdom of these commands that God had given to the children of Israel that three thirty five hundred years ago God just gave it they obeyed it and they enjoyed the benefits of it but sometimes today we're able to see the wisdom behind it in a way that they could have never ever comprehended the, the, the children of Israel needed this instruction uh, because they were just coming out of 400 years uh, in Egypt and uh, it was a land that was very very dark spiritually speaking it was a land that was very very uh, superstitious and they're leaving Egypt to come into Canaan which was a land that was uh, you know just as superstitious as uh, is is Egypt and uh, even more primitive than Egypt now years ago there was two doctors by the name of S.I. McMillan and uh, David E. Stern and they wrote a book that has sold uh, over a million copies in fact it's kind of a Christian classic and the title of that book is none of these diseases and in that book it's a very worthwhile read by the way uh, but in that book they lay out uh, in detail the wisdom of of God revealed in the law of Moses in terms from a medical standpoint in terms of uh, preventing all manner of diseases and they look at these commandments that God gave to Moses in the light of modern medicine now thinking about the children of Israel coming out of Egypt and what they had been exposed to there uh, frightening for instance in Egypt uh, in the uh, you know books and the, or the writings and all that we've been able to get a hold of and translate down through history in Egypt if you ever got pink eye it was treated with a mixture of eel eyes and goose guts that was you might just say to the doctor I think I'm okay with pink eye I really just I'll boost my immune system and 
we'll just work it from there, really. And, um, in terms of baldness, uh, baldness was treated with a mixture of six fats uh, from the horse, the hippopotamus, the crocodile, the cat, the snake, and the wild goat. That was the concoction, again. Uh, it would, if it didn't cure you, it would make you uh, far more content with, with your current situation uh, <laughs> in, in, instead of... In a, in a more serious vein, the, for the um, treatment of splinters, uh, the ancient Egyptian doctors would apply a salve of worm blood and donkey dung. Now, now, the problem with that, especially those of you from the medical uh, side of things, you know that dung is, is loaded with tetanus spores. So just a simple splinter, a simple kind of thing like that, uh, they were working very hard to move you toward a miserable death by, by lockjaw. And uh, so that, that was... It, in, in fact, until the late 1800s, we think about uh, how advanced we are today, but we forget about how advanced things are, are happening literally by the year. Uh, God said knowledge would increase in the last days, didn't he? And we're seeing, uh, seeing that. But until the late 1800s, uh, even most Western doctors thought that pus promoted healing, that that was a good sign in a wound. And so they agreed with the Egyptian... Ebers papyrus that said it was it is good for a wound to rot a little therefore put something in the wound that will make it produce pus and that's that's the way that they would treat uh, wounds in the ancient world uh, so you have very very a lot of well-meaning doctors uh, needlessly killing people in, in this way. And you, you look at, uh, uh, get any kind of books on ancient medical practices or ancient uh, personal hygiene practices and, and, and the different things and all, and as you would read them, the modern reader would be horrified at what, what they're reading. But you know what is, is interesting to realize is that of the hundreds and hundreds of health regulations that the Lord gave to Moses, 3,500 years later, not one of them is medically suspect. Not one of them. And just speaks the divine origin and the wisdom behind even the law of Moses, which is a picture of the coming of Christ. During the Middle Ages, the, when the bubonic plague, bubonic plague uh, spread through uh, all of, of Europe there in 1348, and it, it uh, wiped out a quarter to a third of the human population in, in, uh, in uh, Europe. Now you think about that. I mean, if uh, 20 people die of something in a city, and anywhere in, in the Western world, I mean, it's a, a frantic uh, thing. I mean, it's got all of our attention on things. Imagine a quarter to a third of the world's population in a section of the world dying of, of that plague. The interesting thing is that because the Jews in Europe adhered to the law of Moses, they would not drink from public wells. Uh, they would bathe from their mikvahs. Uh, they would were careful in not eating any kind of sick animal, no sick chicken, no sick cows, none of these kind of, of things. They were very careful in how they uh, handled and disposed of dead bodies, how they handled... Um, uh, body fluids that were coming from uh, different bodies, whether still alive or dead, uh, they, because they adhered to the law of Moses, their death rate was uh, very, very low in comparison to the general population. And just following the law of Moses. Now, tragically, the Gentile population of Europe came to the conclusion that it was because the Jews had, as kind of a plot, had instituted this plague because they were seeing their population being, uh, you know, more than decimated, triple decimated, and, and they thought, because the Jews are not being hit the way that we are, then it's a plot of the Jews, and it unleashed a terrible anti-Semitic persecution against the Jews. So a very sad chapter in human history, but it shows the wisdom and the blessing of, of the law of Moses and how how it has served uh, uh, God's people, served the uh, children of Israel uh, through the entire period of the, of the Old um, 
covenant. Now in chapter 11 he begins by instructing them concerning what is clean and what is unclean to eat is, is food. Now as wonderful as all of the health benefits are of you know some of uh, uh, adhering to the law of Moses in these ways and how it served the children of Israel that is not the main reason that God gave these laws. It is a it is a byproduct. It is a wonderful blessing from it. But God did not give them this law for that purpose supremely. These laws were given to them in order to, by obeying these laws, they would differentiate themselves from the other populations of the world. It was in order for the, that they would recognize that they were a different people in the world from the rest of the people in the world. And for the world to recognize these are a different people. And so every time they would sit down to eat a meal, what they would eat and what they wouldn't eat in, in comparison to what everyone else would or wouldn't eat around them, it was a constant reminder to them that we are not like everyone else in this world. We are holy. We serve a holy God. We are to be a holy people. And so what, what do we do uh, almost more than anything except breathe. Eat. Eat. So every meal was a reminder that they were uh, a holy people. Now, before we get into all of this and, you know, you throw away your bacon at home and uh, all of the, these things, I, w I want us to understand the application of these laws to us as, uh, as, as Christians. As Christians, we are not under the Old Testament uh, law and uh, thus we're not under its dietary laws. Jesus has fulfilled those laws uh, for us in, in his life. Colossians chapter 2 verse 13. And you having been, uh, you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. Having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that is against us, speaking of the law of Moses, including the dietary law, which is contrary to us and has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Jesus has fulfilled the law, the requirements of the law for us. Paul declared that no food needs to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving. First uh, Timothy chapter 4. He said, now the Spirit expressly says, that in the latter times some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons teaching lies and hypocrisy having their own conscience seared with a hot iron forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth for every creature of God is good uh, yummy in the uh, super new living uh, Bible and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer Jesus himself declared Mark chapter 7 verse 18 he said are you thus without understanding also he said do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him what he eats because it does not enter his heart but his stomach and is eliminated thus purifying all foods and Jesus said what comes out of a man that defiles uh, a man and so the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day uh, they had made the dietary laws into a, a means of self-righteousness instead of what God had intended them to be and that was a constant reminder to them that they were to be holy in every area of their lives and so as Christians we are to have a, a, every bit as great and even greater concern for holiness as it relates uh, to our lives, greater than the children of Israel. But God has made the test simpler for us in terms of diet or in terms of any activity and all. So instead of giving us this long detailed list of this is what you can do, you can't do, what you can eat, what you can't eat, what you can touch, what you can't touch and all, he tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 31, Therefore, whatever you eat or drink, do whatever you do to the glory of God. Whatever you can eat that brings glory to God, go ahead and, and eat that. Whatever brings glory to Him, feel free to do that. 
and don't consider anything uh, anything that 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 brings glory to him an abomination or something to be unclean. First Corinthians chapter six verse twenty: For you were bought at a price; therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So God says, live a life that is consistent with the sacrifice that Jesus has made for you on, on the cross. And you'll do fine. It'll result in, in a holy life. Did, did he die to enable me to do this? Did he die to enable me to eat this? Did he die to enable me to say this? Uh, and, and if we can look at that and say, yes, it, it is worthy of the cross and the sacrifice then, that is made for me, then we can do that or we can say that or we can feel free uh, to go ahead and, and eat that. Now he gets into it. Specifically, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, These are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. And so he's going to talk about large uh, land animals at this point in time. Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hoofs, and chewing the cud, that you may eat. So they could eat any animal that had two characteristics. It had a cloven hoof and, uh, and it also uh, chewed the cud. One out of two wasn't enough, as we'll see in a moment. It had to, be, had to do both of, of, of those, those things. And uh, so he, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, he doesn't do it here, but later he does. He, here he lists the animals that they can't eat. And then in Deuteronomy, he lists some of the animals that they can eat. They could eat the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the ibex, the uh, antelope, the mountain sheep, all of those uh, anything other than that was uh, unclean and inedible for uh, for the Jews. And so the first that list in Deuteronomy, the first three are domesticated animals. That's why they were used in sacrifices. It was always domesticated animals offered uh, in the sacrifices. Now there are some who see in this requirement of having a cloven hoof and then chewing the cud uh, the spiritual application that Christians should have a separated walk, the cloven hoof, and they should meditate on the Word of God. And it talks about the blessed man and so Psalm 1 and uh, how he meditates on God's Word day and night. The word meditates there, I know, I think Pastor Garth spoke on it here even recently, and maybe he got into it where it means to, to meditate on the Word of God means to chew the cud. It is to be chewing it over in our minds and in our hearts, so to speak, to get the full nourishment and, and all of everything that is, is found in it. Now here is what they, they couldn't eat. Nevertheless, he said, uh, those, uh, these you shall not eat among those that chew the cud or those who have cloven hoofs. The camel, because it chews the cud, but it does, it does not have cloven hooves. It's unclean to you. So it met the one part of the criteria, but not both of them. So they, they couldn't eat that. You look at a camel. A camel, his foot, is, it's got a pad. He has a pad on his, uh, his, his foot. And so it, it, he didn't have a cloven hoof. And so only met one of the requirements. So no eating camel. Now, um, the, the Jews don't eat uh, camels, and uh, there's a place over in Israel where uh, we used to go, you know, one evening during the Israel trip, and uh, we would ride camels. It's harder and harder to find camels to ride in Israel because it's, um, it's kind of, the Jews don't do it, the Arabs do it, and, and we're getting more and more sealed off from some of those areas and access to that kind of thing. And, uh, but one place we used to go, and then one day they, they woke up and all of their camels had been uh, stolen and a, they're a delicacy among the Arabs and so they probably ended up uh, you know somewhere uh, camel burgers or some kind of a thing in uh, the Gaza Strip or on the on the West Bank so they were out he said in verse 5, the rock hyrax, because it chews the cud, but it doesn't have cloven hooves, it's unclean to you. The rock hyrax, also known as the coney in the scriptures. And it's just a little, it's just, little, it's just like a giant hamster, actually. Uh, and uh, it's a little meal on four little legs, just a little plump thing. And when we go to Israel, we always see typically our first coney, for those of you who've been there, at Nimrod's castle up in the north. You see them sunning themselves. Always see a bunch of conies down in 
and En Gedi in the desert region. And uh, they were unclean uh, to eat uh, because they didn't have a, a cloven hoof. It talks about the hair there in, in uh, verse 6, the hair, because it chews the cud, but it does not have cloven hoods, hooves. That's unclean to you. Now this created problems for a lot of people for a long time. Um, because uh, people would look at the hair and as they would look at its um, intestines and, or its, its inner, inner parts it didn't have kind of the uh, anatomy that, that uh, showed a chewing of the cud kind of a, of a thing and, uh, and so, they, so they looked at the Bible and said well the Bible is inaccurate here and so how can it be trusted anywhere it talks about uh, here the, the rabbit or the hare uh, chewing the cud and it, it's only been in the last few decades that uh, they were able to uh, somebody stumbled upon watching uh, rabbits um, in, in, and they do it in the evening so nobody, everybody's sleeping I guess when they uh, do this but the rabbits will eat and then oh, let's see how do we put this um, they will eat and then in the same part of their body that they eliminate their waste, how shall we say number two, <laughs> um, their body is able to do something different where they will excrete the, uh, or eliminate these little sacks of what they've eaten, greenery, and they're in their own little sacks, and as they eliminate them from their body, they re-eat them. And the, it's hard to ruin Bugs Bunny for you and uh, that, but that's, that's the way they do it. So the idea of chewing the cud has that, uh, is that idea of uh, giving this one more go around. And so the, the hair was uh, in, that, in that category and met the, the criteria. And the swine uh, pig, though it divides the hoof, it has a cloven hoof, um, yet it does not chew the cud. That is unclean uh, to you. And so interesting we know today the uh, uh, trichinosis so if you've got to cook pork you want to pork, uh, cook it very very well pork chops and that kind of thing because that worm that kind of lives in the meat and, and all and you've got to cook it enough to kill it well very primitive situation uh, not able to you know uh, standardize those things so well or maybe be so sure of it in the Lord in, in this way he just takes it off the menu uh, for the Jews and so these things were not to be eaten those were the reasons why their flesh you shall not eat nor their and their carcasses you shall not touch they are unclean to you these you may eat and now he moves on to fish and to seafood these you may eat of all that are in the water whatever in the water has number one fins and scales whether in the seas or in the rivers, so salt water, fresh water, uh, that you may eat. It's got to have those two criteria, fins and scales. But all in the seas or in the rivers do, do not have fins and scales. All that move in the water or any living thing that is in the water, they are an abomination to you. They shall be an abomination to you. You shall not eat their flesh, but you shall regard their carcasses as an abomination. Whatever in the water does not have <clears throat> fins or scales, that shall be an abomination to you. So eels are out. Um, uh, no problem for me on that. Uh, shellfish are out. So I have a little problem with that crab issue on that. I, I like that. Lobster's out. Shrimp is, uh, is out. Uh, oysters, clams, squid, all of them out. Catfish are out. And they're just bottom feeders. And so uh, that, that wouldn't have met the criteria. I remember, and there may be even be some, uh, you know, again, certainly some hygiene or, or uh, health issues related to this. I remember as a boy, I for, you've you hear so many things and you forget them but there was something about shellfish you're only supposed to you know pull them off of uh, the rocks you know in northern california and eat them on months that end with r something like that somebody's got it this is great i come up so well prepared for these illustrations but but um you know they used to have that because it's dangerous to eat these things at certain times of of the year and so it's kind of taken off of the menu 
uh, for them. They are not to eat them. And these you shall regard as an abomination among the birds. And they shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. You couldn't eat the eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the kite, the falcon after its kind. Maybe a part of this uh, has to do with the fact that these are uh, birds of prey and so they eat meat that isn't properly bled. Uh, every raven after its kind, the ostrich and uh, the short-eared owl, the seagull and the hawk after its kind, the little owl, the fisher owl and the screech owl, the white owl, the jackdaw, carrion vulture, the stork, the heron after its kind, uh, the hoopoe, I guess, I don't know, don't quote me on that, and the bat. Uh, they were not to be eaten. Now, people look at that and say, what are they talking about bat? They're talking about birds and it talks about bat. Everybody knows a bat isn't a bird. The word used in the Hebrew for bird, it means a flying creature. So it includes birds, but also includes uh, bats. So they were not uh, to have... Uh, eat anything um, there. So, interesting, you could eat uh, uh, doves, you could eat uh, quail, uh, those things were okay to eat. You could eat pigeons. You remember, we'll see a little bit later in, the, uh, in, in their journey, they're going to cry out for meat, and what does God send them? He sends them quail. Uh, so, that was a, a lawful thing for the children of Israel uh, to eat. All flying insects uh, that creep on all fours shall be an abomination to you. Uh, these, uh, yet these you may eat of every flying insect that creeps on all fours. Those which have jointed legs above their, uh, above their feet with which to leap on the earth. These you may eat. So if you're wondering, wow, what in the world is he describing? It makes it very clear here. You may eat the locust after its kind, the destroying locust after its kind, the cricket after its kind, and the grasshopper after its kind, but all other flying insects which have four feet shall be an abomination to you. And so uh, insects for the most part what they? they crawl on the ground, they crawl through uh, uh, dirt and refuse and dung and all kinds of different things, uh, dirty animals, and, uh, and so they, they were not to, uh, not to eat those at all. So, uh, the, but the, the locusts and these things were okay. Remember John the Baptist, when he was out there and uh, an ascetic as he was, out in the wilderness calling the nation of Israel to repentance, his diet was locusts. And then he had a little bit of a sweet tooth, which endears him to me. Uh, he liked it with honey. And, uh, and so he was completely within the boundaries of the law of Moses in, in eating those things. All other uh, insects were not to be eaten. And so that would have been, this would not have been a part of the law that I would have bulked at if I was uh, born a Jew under that law. Sometimes you see these things and see people like eating beetles and, and worms and all kinds of things. And... Uh, Wow. No, uh, I, I, I'm in full agreement with this. Uh, then, verse 24. He said, By these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches the carcass of any of them, of them shall be unclean or ceremonially unclean until evening. So, if you touched one of these things, you'd be unclean the evening, ceremonial unclean, which means it wasn't like a giant kind of uncleanness. It was a relatively minor uncleanness because uh, at evening you would be considered clean once again. The Jews, their day begins with sunset at evening. That's the start of the next day for them. So the end of the day was evening, uh, early evening. We'd say, well, why, why wouldn't be, we'd be unclean at, you know, six in the morning because we're starting a new day. Well, a new day for them was in the evening, so they were unclean until the new day in, in the evening. So, Whoever carries part of the carcass of any of these, uh, them shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. The carcass of any animal that divides uh, the foot but is not cloven-hoofed or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches it shall be unclean. And whatever goes on its paws of all the animals that go on all fours, uh, those are unclean to you. And so uh, cats and uh, touching the body of a cat or a dog or bears or lions and tigers and some 
uh, animals like that. That would render you unclean. And whoever touches any such carcass shall be unclean till evening. Verse 28, whoever carries any such carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. It is unclean to you. And these also shall be unclean to you among the creeping things that creep on the earth. So animals, talk about smaller animals now, that they live, they, they walk very close to the earth. Their body is going back and forth on the earth. And so what you have is their bodies are in, in pretty consistent contact with dirt and, and again refuse and all kinds of things. And, and so uh, they, they would, you'd be supposed to be doubly on the lookout related to them. These shall be unclean to you among the creeping things that creep on the earth, the mole, the mouse, the large lizard after its kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the sand reptile, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that creep. Whoever touches them when they are uh, dead, they shall be unclean until evening. And so all of those are out. So uh, also the snake uh, is, is something that on its belly creeps on the earth. So uh, snakeskin boots or uh, leather tip cowboy boot or lizard skin tip cowboy boots all those are out uh, if you're going to go under the law of Moses and anything of which any of them fails when they are dead shall be unclean whether it is uh, any item of wood or clothing or skin or sack whatever item it is in which any work is done if any of these animals come into contact with these kind of things it renders them unclean they must be put in water and it shall be unclean until evening and then it shall be clean and so if it if these creeping animals touched inanimate objects uh, that were part of your daily life then they were to be washed in water and uh, be considered unclean until evening if they fall into any earthen vessels uh, 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 pottery that was used for cooking because it's a porous surface so you find a dead mouse in in uh, a a pot that you use for cooking, a clay pot, because it's porous, it can absorb uh, something, or even if it's not dead, even if you just find a mouse down in it alive, then that pot was to be uh, destroyed. You shall break it, and whatever is in it shall be unclean. If, if there's food in there, it's defiled, and, and you don't take any... Um, you know, uh, risks with it. So what do we have here? God's protecting their food supply. He's ensuring the purity of their food supply, probably more than we have a pure food supply in the United States. I'm not going to get on this. really bugs me a lot. You can't know where you get your bananas from or your spinach. But, um, uh, so, but there was a concern here about the protection of the food supply here. And, and in such a vessel, any edible food upon which the water falls becomes unclean and any drink that may be drunk from it becomes uh, unclean and so this uh, this they would defile it and anything on which a part of any such carcass falls it shall be unclean whether it is an oven or a cooking stove it shall be broken down for they are unclean and shall be unclean to you you find a dead rat or a dead lizard or something like that in your anything that has to do with food preparation it was to be destroyed. Now, think about how, what a protection that would have been during the uh, bubonic plague and, and other times in, in history. Um, nevertheless, a spring, and a spring is water that's running. It's living water. It's, it, it moves. Uh, so, nevertheless, a spring or a cistern in which there is plenty of water. So, a very large cistern that's holding, uh, you know, zillions of gallons of water. It shall be unclean, but whatever touches any such carcass becomes unclean. So, let's say you'll find a dead mouse uh, somewhere close to a spring that's feeding the water for the village. Because it's living water and it's moving, you just remove the animal, you're unclean clean for removing it but you don't have to the spring isn't defiled if you have this gigantic water very very precious in that part of the world you just couldn't empty out cisterns and so if the body of water in a cistern and a cistern is just a kind of a cave under the ground that would be used to hold water to store water uh, we, kind of like uh, an underground thing like the Ripon Tower you see the water tower up above as you drive by Ripon so 
um, if it was sufficiently large in terms of its volume that a dead animal in it wouldn't uh, be much of an effect upon it because of the amount of water then you just fish that animal out you got rid of it but you didn't get rid of, of the water uh, uh, and if any uh, if a part of any such <clears throat> excuse me carcass uh, falls on any planting seed which is to be sown it remains clean so those of you who are farmers if you went out there and you found a dead rat or something on your seed that you were going to sow and it's broken into the bag or whatever and, and there it is and it's, it's dead, it's eaten itself to death or whatever it might be, you didn't have to throw your seed away because it hadn't begun to germinate yet and, and, and all. So it was still clean. But if water is put on the seed and if a part of any such carcass falls on it, it becomes unclean to you. So if there's water on the seed, it begins to bloom forth, begins to green forth now you find something dead on it um, somehow uh, it, that's a danger to that as a part of the food supply it was unclean you were to destroy all of it and if any animal which you may eat dies he who touches its carcass may be unclean until evening he who eats uh, of its carcass shall watch his clothes and be unclean until evening uh, he also who carries its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean um, until evening and so the uh, how to handle all of these kind of, of dead you know uh, and animals to protect water supply uh, food food supply very wise and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth shall be an abomination it shall not be eaten whatever crawls on its belly so here we are snakes and all whatever goes on all fours or whatever has many feet among all creeping things that creep on the earth so centipedes and millipedes and all these you shall not eat for they are an abomination you shall not make yourself abomination with any creeping thing that creeps nor shall you make yourselves unclean with them lest you be defiled by them and so they uh, were, were not to uh, engage in any of this and then here's the reasons why behind these laws for I am the Lord your God and you therefore uh, shall therefore consecrate yourselves and you shall be holy for I am holy neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps upon the earth and so the point of all of this is I am a holy God and you are a holy people I am different from this world that you're living in you are different from this world you're living in and I want your life to be distinctive in these ways then another reason in verse 45 for I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God you there shall therefore be holy for I am holy I want you to live like this because you don't live in Egypt anymore you're different now from you are my people you were called I got you out of there but don't don't think that that was a, a, an acceptable way uh, to live and then in verse 46 this is the law of the animals and birds and every living creature that moves in the waters and of every creature that creeps on the earth to distinguish between the clean uh, the unclean and the clean and between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten and so it was given to distinguish between what was lawful to eat and not. Now, here we sit here today and we think, wow, I mean, that's, that's quite a list of, of things. And so for some people it's a little bit perhaps tedious. Not to me, I love this stuff. It's just great. I love talking about these things. And I love God's attention to detail on, on all of this. But imagine now, you're one of the priests and you're taking these people from Egypt to the promised land and establishing a theocracy there and all and all these little things would come up and you know Jim over here he's eating snakes and can we do that and someone over here and it was just a way for them to know this is these are the dietary laws that God wants us uh, to to uh, to adhere to and so the the priests would have uh, valued it very very much now of course the, one of the, the great spiritual lessons related to uh, to us uh, is look at how detailed God is how careful he is with what his people eat in the Old Testament so that they wouldn't be defiled so that they wouldn't be unholy 
And Jesus, as Jesus said, what we eat, it doesn't uh, affect our heart in terms of a, uh, you know, uh, um, changing who and what we are and, and, and it, what we really are, but it just passes through the body and then it's out. And, and so the idea is if God has been so careful about their diet, how much more careful we need to be about what goes into the noggin and into the heart through our eyes and through our ears and, and what we allow into our heart and into our mind to, that makes us impure. And the problem with those things is, is you don't pass those things in 24 hours or 48 hours or whatever it is. Those things stick. And so if there's that kind of concern about a dietary holiness, how much more a spiritual holiness to protect our hearts and, and our minds, spiritual side of us being so much more valuable than what we are physically. Chapter 12. In chapter 12 we have the law of purification uh, of uh, women following childbirth. And then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel saying, If a woman has conceived and born a male child. So she has conceived and, and uh, carried the child for the nine months and then now gives birth to the child. If it's a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days. Ceremonially unclean for seven days. Um, she would Anything that she would touch in her home or her husband or anything for those seven days. We'll get into this a little bit later in other chapters. But it, it, she would render those things unclean during... Uh, during those seven days as in the same way that she would in the days of her customary impurity her monthly period uh, uh, she shall be unclean and so to give birth to a male child resulted in this seven days of, of uh, spiritual uncleanly, uh, uncleanliness. Now very very important to understand here because uh, you know sometimes uh, I think that uh, uh, all of us, but I think maybe especially women, when we read some of the, not we, when you read uh, some of these, I'm not confused. Um, so, but when you read these sections, you can, we can start to think, wow, does, you know, what does God think of us and, and all? When, this is not intended to communicate that God considers children to be unclean. Um, in, in fact, the, the, the child is not declared to be unclean. The mother is declared to be ceremonially unclean because of the flow of her, her blood. Jesus, uh, the Bible declares children to be a blessing from him. Uh, in, in Psalm 127 talks about them being a blessing uh, from the Lord. Also, this does not mean that conception and birth of children is a wrong thing or a bad thing or that the sexual relationship is a, uh, between a husband and wife that produces the child is considered unclean by God. God initiated the physical relationship between a husband and a wife. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, he told Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And, and, so, and then he declared concerning all of his creation that it was good. Indeed, it was very good. You say, well, that was before the fall. No, no, yeah, it was. But then after the flood, God speaks the same thing to Noah in, uh, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 7. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Now, in verses 5 and uh, seven. We're not there yet, but this is the way we do things around here. Uh, the, the reason mothers were rendered ceremonially unclean for a time was because of the discharge of blood and other fluids uh, in, in the course of, of uh, childbirth. And as we're going to see when we get to chapter 15, the Lord instructed the children of Israel to be very careful in their handling of blood and their handling of body fluids in the interest of protecting against the spread of disease. Now, we know what they could not have known back in those days and how quickly disease can be spread through body fluids and through blood uh, also. And so there was to be great care taken uh, related to her. She would have the child and there would typically be 
a period of about uh, seven days where she would continue to uh, flow a little bit in terms of blood, another discharge for a time. Then there would be an even extended period beyond that. And all of this is in order to protect uh, related to that. There's another reason for it, but we'll get to that in a moment. When she talk, he talks, the Lord does, about the birth of, of a female child. So this was she was rendered unclean for seven days, then 33 days on, on top of that where she was ceremonially unclean. She was clean for contact with her husband again, but uh, she couldn't go to, to the temple or she couldn't go to the tabernacle. She shouldn't, couldn't touch anything that was associated with the worship of the Lord. For those 33 days, she would, she would render uh, all of that um, unclean. Now notice in verse 3, on the eighth day, uh, the flesh of the, the male child of his foreskin shall be circumcised. And so remember uh, God, way back in Genesis chapter 17, he had given the uh, right of circumcision to Abraham as a sign of, his, of God's covenant with Abraham and with his descendants. What God does now with circumcision is he makes it a part of the law of Moses. And so that that's what that's what's uh, uh, happening here and circumcision represented a reminder to Abraham and his descendants that they had a relationship with God that was unlike anyone else in the world. It identified them. Uh, it talks in Genesis chapter 17 of it being a sign. And so it identified them as uh, uh, followers of, of the Lord. And uh, so to obey God in, in circumcision communicated that you believe that God would keep his promises to you and it symbolized the cutting away of the flesh and, and uh, that we're a people who are not dominated or ruled by our flesh but we're ruled by God. Now, very interesting as we go away from the, the spiritual side of it and, and back to the physical kind of uh, personal hygiene side of things. Isn't this great? It's just like being in school again, isn't it? And, um, but I am a qualified expert on these these issues. So, but the interesting thing, just reading in the Modesto B uh, within the last two months, and uh, talking about the, here's the Modesto B and the secular press and and all, and they were speaking, write, uh, written a very lengthy article on uh, favorably of male circumcision in the world, in terms of slowing down the spread of disease and what are called developing nations or third world nations. There's uh, something very real where uh, people who do not have access to uh, a shower every day or two showers every day or three showers every day or whatever you want to do in terms of personal hygiene, they don't even have that as a consideration. And so the circumcision brings these sexually transmitted diseases and other diseases way down. And uh, so as much as this kind of thing its origin in the Bible, they think it's you know punishment and barbaric and all of that. Even there, uh, secular people are looking and saying, uh, somebody knows what they're talking about as it relates to, uh, to all of this. And I think that in, in case anyone is, is wondering, as Christians, the New Testament makes very clear that it's not more spiritual as a Christian to be circumcised or, or uncircumcised. The way that we reveal uh, our relationship with God is not through a physical circumcision, but through our obedience to God in this world. The Apostle Paul put it this way, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 18. He said, Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him, not, uh, become, let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called why, while uncircumcised? Then let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. There is, there, uh, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised. Barbarian, Scythian, Scythian slave or free, but Christ is all in all. So the boys were to be circumcised on the eighth day, and as we noted when, when we dealt with it way back in Genesis chapter 17, the eighth day is the perfect day for the circumcision of, of a little boy. It isn't until... The, uh, if if a, a boy was circumcised before day five, um, he'd probably bleed to death in the ancient world. The clotting abilities of, of, the, of the body not developed enough at that point in time. 
But it, 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 on day seven, and, and it's, a, it's vitamin K developing within, within the child, um, on day seven, the, the, the clotting uh, of, of the child until day ten, will, the, the clotting abilities of, of a, a child is at its, its highest in its entire life. After day 10, uh, for the remainder of that child's life, his, his clotting abilities in his body will then diminish. It is, the, it is the single ideal time for anything surgical to happen related to that child. is between the 7th and the 10th day, the 8th day is, is ideal. Only God could know that and as, as he uh, prescribes this for, uh, for them as a, a sign of his, his covenant. And then, uh, then she shall continue in the blood of her purification 33 days. So it, that, that's the reason for it, the blood of her purification. She shall not touch any hallowed thing nor come into the sanctuary until the end of her purification, uh, the days of her purification are fulfilled. So a total of 40 days of ceremonial uncleanness when you gave birth uh, to a boy. But if she bear, uh, bears a female child, then she shall be unclean uh, for two weeks. That's twice as much as with the boy. And uh, uh, as in her customary impurity, and she shall continue in the blood of her uh, purification 66 days, and that was uh, twice the length of of, of the boys, uh, the birth of a boy uh, in, in terms of the birth of, of a girl. Now, um, some of the reasons uh, related uh, to, uh, to this and this period of, uh, of purification and all. Um, After the seven days, uh, you know, you, you would have, especially with the male, for the additional 33 days, you, you'd continue to have uh, a flow of blood periodically and, and discharges and these things. And so uh, they wanted to make sure all of that, that was cleaned up. There was also some physical benefits to all of this. Certainly would have given her, uh, allowed her to rest and recuperate get settled in with a new child. I don't have to entertain anyone. I don't have to go anywhere, any of these things. And I think it also would have protected the baby against sickness. You're not taking the baby out into all of these things and dangerous in that, that ancient world. And also, I don't think that there's any doubt that this long period of ceremonial uncleanness reminded everyone of the curse of Adam and Eve's uh, fall and, and sin in the Garden of Eden. Uh, and I think that's the main intent of God behind it. The, the child is not unclean. The woman is unclean. And I think it's a reminder of the fall of man through Adam and Eve in, in the Garden uh, of, of Eden. Remember that one of the consequences of, of that fall in the Garden of Eden, uh, one of the consequences that fell upon Eve was pain and childbirth. That's what God specifically spoke about. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Now, apparently, prior to the fall of man, um, uh, childbirth was not intended to be painful, was not, was not going to be painful. Now, uh, what that you know, means, I don't know, and, and how uh, all of that uh, might have uh, you know, worked out. But that was the design, uh, pain involved, and the delivery of a child, that was post-fall. I think if the men got away with it, God said, no, the earth is cursed, weeds, thistles, all of this, you're going to earn your living by the sweat of your brow. So both male and female bore consequence immediately related to, to the fall of man. And uh, so this childbirth, as we know it today, specifically the pain involved, it's a reminder of the fall of Adam and Eve uh, in the garden. So... Uh, as wonderful as bringing a child uh, into the world is, as wonderful as the birth of a child is, here is the reminder that they have brought a sinner into the world. They have brought a fallen, sinful, unclean human being into the world. And if you don't think you gave birth to a sinner when you brought that child into the world, you're very new uh, in, in things. They will do things wrong that you don't have to teach them to do. 
You can keep them away from TV. You can keep them away from every kind of input. And they will expose themselves as sinners uh, sooner or later. You don't have to go up to a child and say, Now listen, when I go into the store, let's just be peaceful for about five minutes. And then I'd like you to just throw a fit. Okay, right by the candy counter. I'd like that kind of... So they just do that on their own, don't they? They're just little sinners just like you. Tough gene pool. And you know that. You know what you are on, on things. So... So it was a reminder that you have brought something wonderful, a gift from God into the world, but you have brought a sinner into the world too. You have brought another person into the world that is going to add their load of sin uh, to Jesus on that cross at, at Calvary. When, when King David, he wrote in Psalm uh, 51, he said, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now he's not saying anything bad about his mother there at all. He's just simply stating the fact that every birth introduces a new sinner into the world. The, that sin nature is imparted at conception. New Testament verses declare the same thing. Romans 5:18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. We came into this world as sinners, deserving the wrath of God. Now, when the, this extended period, a double period, of a purification time related to the birth of, uh, of, of a female, of a daughter. Again, it would be so wrong to view this uh, to negatively about the birth of, of a daughter, that daughters are less than sons and all of that. I speak that as a father of two daughters. And, uh, or, or that God views the, you know, the birth of a daughter as, as uh, more unclean than a male child. Uh, it, it, it is possible that this period of purification was doubled in light of the fact that she would probably bring more sinners into the world one day. That's a possibility. We don't really know. Or it could be as a reminder of Eve's very significant role in the fall of man. Sin, uh, Eve sinned first. She did sin first in that Garden of Eden. Or perhaps it was just the, the shortened period of purification associated with the male child was, had something to do with the circumcision. We really don't know for sure. Uh, but, but where we don't know, we don't want to read into silence on something uh, like that. Now, when her days, the offerings that she was to offer at the end of her period of purification, when the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or a daughter. So the same offering was to be made whether it was a son or a daughter. Why? He values them equally. It has no issue of the value of a, a daughter or a son or a boy or a girl or a man or, or a woman. When the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove as a sin offering at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he that is the, uh, the priest shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her and she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. So again, this issue of, of being separated has to do with, with the flow of her, her blood, the uncleanness of, of, of that blood. This is the law for her who has born a male or a female. The other thing too, I think that is good, to, well, anyway, um, whether a male or a female. Don't want to beat a dead horse. And if she uh, is not able to bring a lamb, so it comes from a poor family, they can't afford a lamb, which was a considerable expense, um, then she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. I think that got on the tape. God bless you. And if she is not able to bring a lamb, then she may bring two turtle doves 
or two young pigeons. One is a burnt offering, the other is a sin offering. And so the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. And so the offering for a middle class or an upper class family involved the, uh, a lamb and then a, a, a bird, if you were poor, two birds. Which is significant for us because Joseph and Mary following the birth um, uh, of, of Jesus when, when they came in to offer the sacrifices related to Mary's purification and all what did they bring? They brought, they brought two birds and indicating that Jesus was born into a poor family not a poorer family he was born into a poor family and uh, God Almighty chose for his son to be born into uh, and, and raised in a, 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 a home and a family that was poor. They paycheck to paycheck and, and working hard and hustling and, and all those kinds of things. That's where he, he had his son raised. It's good to think about with 7th Street, isn't it, Leaf, on that. I, we, so, Leaf heads up uh, the, you know, uh, the Calvary Ministries down there and it's 7th Street. And I think to myself as he works down there and all, what if God brings the next Billy Graham or the next whoever, you know, right out of Modesto in an area that's overlooked or where things are a little bit tighter and that kind of a deal. So that's where God chose for his son to be raised. I think we're heading into Christmas season, aren't we? But I think even uh, if we weren't, it's very important for us as parents to understand that if you raise your child in the Lord and you can't give them every single thing or you can't give them anything that the culture says that this is what a kid needs or they're going to be scarred for life. They didn't get, you know, these million dollar tennis shoes and these million dollar games and this thing and that and the whole guilt and mom and everybody has them and I don't have them and all oh, I'm a terrible. And I mean there's nobody knows guilt like mothers and fathers are prone to it too and we can begin to think, oh, we've just denied our children every opportunity. It's not true. We raise our children in the ways of the Lord. We raise our children in the context that He has put us in. He knows what our context is, what we have, what we don't have. And those chi our children will never be less than what they can be and what God wants them to be spiritually and an impact for the world based upon some material thing that we can or we cannot provide to them. And it's good for teenagers to be aware of that too. I think that is, is the pressure is on to have this or not have this or these things and mom and dad can't pull this off and these things. It's okay. It's okay. Jesus was raised in just that, that kind uh, of, of an environment. And so uh, good to know that. It's a en good encouragement to our hearts. And I think it's also good to realize if you're a person of substance and you have um, you know, wealth to give your children virtually anything that they would want or that they would ask for, that you're not being a terrible parent when you pull back and you say, I, I could buy you a hundred of these things, but I'm not going to do it. I'm raising a child. I'm not going to let the culture raise my child. I want a certain kind of child at the end of these 18 years or these 21 years, and that does not play into it. And I think when a person is a person of means, there's even greater responsibility to be careful of that so that we don't nurture a, a addiction to comfort in our children. Remember the guy came to Jesus and said, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. Jesus said, the foxes have their holes, the birds of the air have their nests, the Son of Man has no place to, to lay his, his head. And, and the guy makes his way off away. He's addicted to comfort. He wants a nice plush bed, he wants to serve the Lord, but he wants all this other kind of stuff too. And we can inadvertently raise soft children for the kingdom of God. And they'll never go out and make a difference. And we spoil them under our watch. So don't be so concerned about being strict or, or making people earn children earn certain things or not allow them to have that uh, at all. They have their whole adult life to mess their life up. Uh, we, we don't, uh, and, and, but by then they should be able to make good decisions and hopefully they won't uh, do that. And, and so here as we... 
close here this evening on, uh, on this. Here, while the Old Testament law kept mankind aware of the fact that human birth resulted in the birth of a sinner into the world. That's what the law did. You gave birth to a sinner. You brought another sinner into the world. You brought another sinner into the world. You brought another sinner into the world. And, and what the law did is it reminds us of sin. It reminded them of this. The beautiful thing is that Jesus came to actually provide a solution for it. And the law of Moses was designed to prepare the way for Jesus who would come and, and provide the solution. And Jesus' solution to the fallenness of the first birth, the physical birth, is what? Second birth, the spiritual birth. That's why he talked about being born again. No one can enter into the kingdom of, of heaven without, without being uh, born again. And that spiritual birth that he provides, it overwhelms the first birth with its victory. Let me read a couple of verses to you as we close here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all are made alive. 1 Corinthians 15:45 And so it is written the first man Adam being a became a living being the last Adam became a life-giving spirit however the spiritual is not first but the natural and afterward the spiritual the first man was of the earth made of dust speaking of Adam the second man speaking of Jesus is the Lord from heaven as was the man of dust so also were those who were made of dust and as is the heavenly man so also are those who are heavenly and as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The worship team would come uh, forward. I'd like them to lead us in a couple of worship songs as we would close out this evening just to give God praise for His holiness tonight.